ahead and grab your Bible and you can turn to that, that passage we just read, Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 1. We'll, we'll look at the transfiguration here today. And, um, I want to reference back as you turn there, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, to our first reading there in Exodus. And so this is many, many, many years ago, of course. God calls Moses to then go and uh, rescue, help rescue the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We know this story that the, the great exodus from Egypt is this um, really miraculous parting of an ocean, of a Red Sea, so the people of Israel can walk through on dry ground to escape the pursuing army of Pharaoh, right? I mean, you've never seen that happen, right? I've never seen that happen. Pretty miraculous. God does something incredible. After all the plagues to defeat the, the, the nation of, of Egypt, then he leads them through the desert and he feeds them from the sky. Food falls from the sky. Food's getting expensive these days for us, isn't it? What if food just came out of the sky? That would save us some money. Inflation wouldn't matter. Maybe that would, maybe that would make inflation worse. I don't know. But they got quail. Everyone talks about the manna. No one remembers the quail. Quail's really good. They got water from a rock. God did all this stuff and then brought them to a mountain and then God appears on a mountain in a flame of fire and in a thundering cloud. Okay, so all Israel's gathered around and God says, Moses, take Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nahab and Abihu, and 70 elders and come up on the mountain. So they come up on the mountain. We're going to talk more about the rest of that narrative, but fast forward, we're going to, we're going to parentheses, we'll come back to the middle part, but after Moses is on the mountain, he's there for 40 days, and he receives instructions for the temple, the basic worship rites for the people of Israel, and he comes down, he's like, all right guys, I just heard from God, I mean, the one who did all that stuff that we just lived through over the last couple months, yeah, that God, Yahweh, our God, the father, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he just spoke to me, and this is what he wants us to do. And as he's about to tell them, he notices there's a big golden calf that they're all worshiping, a statue of a cow made out of gold, and they're worshiping this idol. And he gets very angry, and an ensuing um, judgment breaks out. How is it that Israel goes through that kind of a rescue? They see God work in the most miraculous ways. They're about to hear from the very mouth of God, and they forget him. How is that possible? I think that we could probably relate, actually. We might think, oh, that's crazy, but what about you and me? Maybe you've met the Lord Maybe Christ has saved you. Maybe you've believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you've, you've had God reveal himself to you in crazy ways. You've seen him deliver you out of really terrible situations, or you've seen him minister to you when you've been really down. You've had great blessing in your life. You've heard God's word. Then why is it that at later times, it might feel like he's really distant? You might forget him. You might fall into sin. How is it that we can see such great deliverance and experience so great a salvation and then not that long later feel so distant from that same God? Uh, I want to talk about that today. What is it that when something like Mount Sinai happens or, or the Mount of Transfiguration, that we can then come out of that and feel so distant from Christ and what's going on in our lives? How do we address that? So that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Christ wants to show you his glory personally. Like in a very personal way, Christ wants, to, wants you to experience him in his glory. And then he wants, to, he wants to transform you to experience that glory. And once you've experienced that glory. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, and talk about this experience of Christ's glory because it says right before this that Christ just got done talking about how he was going to die and how he was going to be raised from the dead. And Peter said, no, 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 don't talk like that. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Called him Satan. And so then he comes to this mountain and it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain. So first it says, after six days, and we're meant to see here the connection to the previous story that we just saw in um, in excuse me, the previous story that we saw in just chapter 16. So like we said, this, this comes six, six days after a statement about the death of Christ. Some were going to stand there, he said, in the very, the very previous verse, it says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, right at the end of, of chapter 16. That word kingdom can mean kingship or rule or dominion. Um, so, I think it's probably a better translation to say in his kingship because we're meant to see the connection between that verse and then just six days later, here's three who are actually going to see that. They're about to see something really significant. Jesus in his full uh, kingship, in his full dominion, his full glory. It's a demonstration of that kingly identity in this moment that we're about to see. It's just six days after that statement from Jesus. So after six days, it says Jesus took with him, Peter and James and John, his brother. So that's not John, Jesus' brother, but that's James' brother, John. Um, they're, this, they're called the sons of Zebedee. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Peter, James, and John were some of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus, you may, you may know Jesus had 12 disciples that are named in the Gospels, and he had other followers outside of that. But then even within the 12 disciples, we see Peter James and John get a really close inside look to things that Jesus did that, that no one else got. Um, in, in chapter 4, right after Jesus is baptized, in chapter 4 of Matthew, right after Jesus is baptized, and he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted, he comes out, he calls his first disciples, and who does he call first? He calls Peter and his brother and James and John. These are his, his first disciples. And then, not too long later, Jesus raises a, a Roman ruler's daughter from the dead, named Jairus. Jairus is like, Jesus, come help my daughter. She's, she's sick. And when they get there, the, the, the daughter's dead. And Jesus goes into the house. And Mark chapter 5 tells us, Jesus allowed no one in that room with him except Peter, James, and John. And they get to see Jesus raise this little girl from the dead. In chapter 10 of Matthew, when all the disciples are named, we get a list of the, of the, of, of the disciples. The first ones listed are Peter, James, and John. Hang with me. There's a reason we're belaboring this point. Um, and his final hours. So these are really fun situations where they get to see really great things. He raises a girl from the dead and he's about to be transfigured. Well, also at the end of the story in Matthew 26, uh, 36 to 37, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what happens in, in the garden? To pray there. And so he takes his 12 disciples and he tells them, wait here. So let's say they walk in the garden, wait here. And then it says he takes Peter, James, and John and he walks a little bit further. So there's like a separation where they're brought out. And he says, pray with me. And so 
They stop here, and then Jesus goes a little bit farther, and he falls on the ground, and he starts praying. He's sweating blood. He's begging for his life. He's asking God to let this cup pass from him. He turns around. Peter, James, and John are asleep. That's beside the point. The main point is that Peter, James, and John were given even closer access, not just to the glories, but also to the sorrows of Jesus Christ. This reveals to us that we are getting a report here of a highly special moment of insight and revelation. And in fact, at the end of the pericope, what does it say? Don't tell anyone what you saw here until I've raised from the dead. No one knew this happened if they kept their mouth shut. No one knew this happened until after the resurrection. This was an incredibly special moment of revelation. R.T. France, this is emphasized, I'll say this, it's emphasized by the fact that he led them up on a high mountain. So they're clearly, there's not a city up there, there's not a lot of people around. He's removed from everyday life. Like if you were to hike up a mountain, you're not going to just stay up there probably for a very long time. You might camp for a while, but eventually everyday life is happening on a different plane. It's not happening at that altitude, at that elevation. This is as far removed, R.T. France says, uh, as possible from other people and from everyday life. This is a very close and intimate and special revelation that's about to happen. So much so that Peter, who sees this, when he's writing his final letter, 2 Peter, he, he's, he's, he's defending his apostleship. He's, de- he's defending the gospel. And the, the main point that he references back to in the first chapter of 2 Peter is we saw him glorified and transfigured on the mountain. We've seen his glory. And it's this life-changing and, and ministry-defining moment for Jesus. So we're about to see what was, what's recorded for us now. Um, Jesus gave him permission to write it down after he wrote, rose from the dead, right? Uh, so what we see and what we're reading now is a very uh, intimate experience that no one else at the time got. You're being welcomed into this revelation of Jesus. So what does it say? What happens? Look at verse 3. It says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This description of Jesus is really similar to descriptions of some other figures that appear in the Gospels and in the Bible too, right? Have you, if you remember the appearance of of the angels when they appear to people like Mary, when they appear at the tomb, or when they appear at the ascension of Christ, it says that they are dressed in white clothes, and it's terrifying to see them. There's something about them that's not quite normal. <laughs> Even though they're wearing white clothes, it says that it's white like lightning. Like it's got this, this electricity to it. It's got this radiance to it. It's got this otherworldly glow to it. There's something going on here that is not of this world. So the same Jesus who they've eaten with that they've, had, that they've uh, drank with, that they've walked around with, who they've seen tired, who they've, you know, on a boat in the middle of a storm, no less. Uh, the same Jesus that they've seen do all kinds of teaching and healing is now in a completely different hue before their eyes. He's not the same Jesus, or is he? Well, in fact, he is the same Jesus. He is being uh, transfigured before them. He's, it's, it's, it's like the glory is being unveiled and the veil is being pulled back and the true nature of Jesus is shining forth. The Lord, we see in, in Psalm 104, 1-2, I'll go there. In Psalm 104, it starts off, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. Look what it says. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. 
just wrapped around you, splendor and majesty. Covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. There's another place where it says our God dwells in inapproachable or unapproachable light. Um, we are supposed to see the, the, the imagery of God in his temple wrapped in light as we see Jesus unveiled, transformed, transfigured before us. It also matches a vision given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. So he, he starts to see, he sees all these winged animals flying around. They're like burning with fire. They've got like wheels and five wings and all this. It's, it's a crazy vision, by the way. You should read it. But then he gets to the part where he describes God and it says, and above the expanse over their heads, so above all the angelic and winged uh, creatures, above their heads was a, um, a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. So it's, it's dazzling. There's a clarity to it. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God. And so this, this imagery of God revealed in heaven is certainly in the minds of the apostles as they see Jesus revealed on the mountain. He's transfigured before them and we are meant to see in Christ an appearance of someone greater than anyone else they've ever seen. We are meant to see an appearance of, uh, of someone greater than any prophet, greater than any angel. And in fact, after Peter uh, offers the, the accommodations for them, he says, I can build you guys some tents. Don't know how long that would have taken him. Taken him. I don't know if he brought like tent material with him, but uh, he offered to build some tents because he was like, this is awesome and we shouldn't leave. We should just hang out. Um, I don't really want to leave. The fact that there's now Elijah and Moses and Jesus here who clearly is more than just a man, let's build some tents and stay here. Um, after he makes that recommendation, it says, while he's still speaking, the cloud goes a bright cloud, not a dark cloud, a bright cloud comes over him and he's like, you know, what did I say? Did I say something I wasn't supposed to? As he's still speaking. It says that. Did you see it? Nope, I'm in the wrong book. He was still speaking when, behold, I mean, he, a voice from the cloud said, what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So I don't know, Peter might have thought that he was just a prophet, just like Moses and Elijah. And hey, here's three equally awesome prophets that we can make three equally awesome tents for. Might have been what he thought. God comes in to set the record straight. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is someone greater than Moses, greater than the angels. So now things get really serious and scary, don't they? If we weren't already crazy enough, Jesus is shining, there's a, a Elijah has appeared and Moses has appeared and they've been dead a really long time at this point, so this is like from the heavenly realms, okay? Uh, 
We know this is scary because it says when they heard this, the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified, which is a proper response to the voice of God, to fall on your face and be terrified. We have to compare this scene. We have to compare this scene to what we just saw in Exodus 24. And I have this chart that I want to put up that compares the, um, uh, the approach of Moses at Sinai to the approach of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, in the first one, it's, it's interesting that in Exodus 24, uh, God calls Moses, he calls Aaron, he calls Nadab and Abihu, or his Aaron's sons, and then he calls the 70 elders, and they come up, and they, they, it says that they see God, and they dine with him, um, and that he's standing on clear pavement. I'm not sure what to do about that, but that's what it says. <laughs> they see God, and they dine with him. And then from there, God calls Moses out from the elders. And it says Moses rises with his servant, or the one alongside him, Joshua. He hadn't been named before. He kind of snuck in there. He's at Moses' side. As you may know, Joshua ends up being the um, successor to Moses when they go into the promised land. But Joshua, in Hebrew, Yeshua. Or in Greek, the Greek version of the Old Testament, Jesus. Um, that's Jesus. It's the same name for Jesus. I find it interesting that after six days, the cloud comes onto the mountain, and after six days, Moses enters the cloud with Jesus at his side. But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, Jesus, is in the cloud with Moses at his side. There's a reversal here. And there's a type. What has happened is the prophet of the old covenant, who was a servant over the house of God, who was faithful as a servant over the house of God, who delivered the old covenant, who mediated for the people, who played his part beautifully. Sometimes he messed up, but he played his part faithfully, Hebrews tells us. His time ended. His time over the old covenant ended. And what he was faithful over as a servant, Jesus is now faithful over as a son. Jesus is revealed not just as a new prophet of the new covenant, but as the fulfillment of the prophet like unto Moses, who is now also the son who inherits the house, which is the people of God. He is greater. He is the greater prophet. He is the son of God over the house. He appears in the cloud. And so Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, we know that Moses' face was shining. He saw the glory and he comes down and they're like, we don't like that. You're, you're scaring us. So he puts a veil over his face. Second Corinthians 3 talks about this. There's a veil over his face. And um, when he came out from the tent of meeting, every time he went to talk to God, his face would be glowing. He's like the moon, right? Reflecting the light of the sun. But Jesus, when he's on the mountain and he, uh, how do I say this? When he um, unveils his glory, I'll just say it that way. When he peels back the veil, when the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and the glory comes out, what we see is not that he is just reflecting glory temporarily. This is an inherent glory that is being, uh, a glimpse is being given to. This glory is an inherent glory that is in the nature of Jesus Christ himself. It's not a, a reflection from God that he then has to go back in and kind of renew like a, like a battery. It's not a rechargeable battery. No, this is 
part of his nature. Jesus is glowing from the inside. The radiance and the glory of God as the Son of God is coming from him. So just like there was a shadow and a reflection before of what God is like, now we have the fullness. We have the exact imprint of the nature of God. We have the full expression of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, fully on display. So it's not just reflected, it's an inherent, emitted glory from the Son of God. And um, we don't, don't get to read this far, but we just talked about this last line. We talked about how um, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, he's like, I'm excited, just talk to God. You're never going to believe what he said. Um, and he sees the, the, the golden calf, they destroy the calf, they judge the people. Moses goes back up on the mountain and God's like, just go from the mountain, go to your thing, I'll, I'll be with you, yada, yada. Matt, or uh, Matt, Moses says, no, we don't want to leave if you're not going to personally, if this reality doesn't come with us, I don't want to go. And he begs God, don't, first of all, don't destroy your people, and second of all, we're not going if you don't come with us. So God agrees. And then Moses says, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. As if what he's seeing right now, there's more, there's there's, there's a greater glory, and God says, no man can see me and live. So I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by, and you can see my back. And that's all he gets to see, and we see Ezekiel, see kind of a likeness of something kind of like a man, and he falls on his face. But here we see Peter, James, and John. If you'll put up the, the icon of Peter, and James, and John, um, at the transfiguration, we see him glorified and um, two of them are falling down, covering their eyes, blinded by the light, seemingly afraid, but one in the bottom left corner uh, is supposed to be John, his full face just staring at Jesus. He gets it in this art. The invitation is actually not to shrink away. And this is not a glory that kills it's a glory that heals. And to show that that's the case, Jesus walks over and he touches Peter and James and John and he heals them. So you would think that an incredible experience like this would be one and done. I mean, you, how do you ever recover from this? How, how, how do you ever fall from this, right? Right? Well, what does Peter do? Time for Jesus to be executed unjustly, and Peter denies that he even knows who Jesus Christ is, that he's never met the man. So um, that's kind of encouraging, actually, in the sense that we haven't ever experienced anything like this personally with Jesus. We've received different shadows and revelations of Christ. But when we find ourselves falling away, or we find ourselves apathetic, distracted, not close to Jesus, you may not even ever dis, uh, uh, deny Jesus, right? But things are not as they should be. The extremes of transfiguration and denial of Jesus, Peter thankfully went through uh, for us so that we don't have to. We can see that even if our experience is a, a shorter spectrum of he saved me, and right now I just don't feel like praying. I just don't feel like being here. Like that's not as extreme of a, of a, of a spectrum, but it's still not where we want to be, right? 
And I can, I can tell you in my own life, I'm, I mean, I'm currently in a season where I'm struggling to see Jesus. And this is something that's been sort of months for me where I've, I'm good, I'm, I'm a priest. I went to eight years of theological school, right? You're like, oh, if I just didn't have a job and I could just read the Bible and pray all day. Well, I went to undergrad and to grad school. It took me longer to do grad school than it was supposed to. So I had like 10 years of theological, focused theological education while I had part-time jobs. And you'd think, surely that's enough to guarantee that you'll have a close relationship with God. I'm here to tell you, it's not a guarantee because we are sinful creatures. And I myself, in my own situation, find myself asking, okay, God, I'm not as close to you as I want to be. So, so what, are, what are the reasons for that? Why would we get there? Well, God is never hiding himself from us. That's the first thing that we have to say. God is not hiding from you. Do you feel like God's distant? He didn't move. He didn't move. He doesn't move. He's immovable. Um, and he, he's not hiding. He's revealed himself fully in the face of Jesus Christ, and he's with you, and he's filled you with his Holy Spirit. When God reveals himself, it may be, number one, that we just have bad vision. I'm wearing glasses. I was having a hard time reading um, in college and actually failed a driving test when I was 16. It just kept getting worse and worse. I went to a doctor and they said, hey, you have keratoconus. And I thought that that meant I had like a year to live. <laughs> and she, because she got real, I mean, you have keratoconus. You know, she tried to really empathetic. I'm like, I'm like, just tell me. <laughs> like, what is it? Break it to me. And so the corneas are thinning out on the outside and they're kind of coning out. There's like a, a misshapen lens on the outside of my eye. And so especially with glasses or like when I don't have glasses on, uh, light will halo. Like I don't see when I'm driving at night, I don't see just pinpoints of light if I don't, if I have these on or if I have to wear my contacts, it fixes it. Don't worry. Um, but otherwise the light starbursts and it's like halos and I can't see anything. I have my, the lens is not is 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 curved. It's it's compromised. I still have a lens. I can still see partially, but I'm not able to see all the way. And this is the way that we, in our spiritual state, uh, we're made in the image of God. We can perceive God. We still have our reason, um, but we don't have proper vision. And we might actually have a distorted view of God and His presence in our life. And we need God to to cleanse us of our sin, to fix our vision. And that's what the Holy Spirit comes in and does comes in and fixes our vision. Uh, another reason might be that our vision might be fine, but we actually might be over-familiar. You ever do that where you hang up a piece of art and you're like, you know, I invested so much money in this art and I'm going to hang it here where we can, everyone can see it. And a month later, you forget it's on the wall. You know what I'm talking about? Or I remember I used to write Bible verses on a card and put it on my bathroom mirror so I could like every morning work through it. And eventually a year and a half later, I, I look over and brushing my teeth and, oh, I forgot that was there. It's like, in, in, it's so familiar, you just stop looking at it. And some of, it, some of you might have been following the Lord for twice as long as I've been alive, or three times. And Jesus is just so familiar that it, we can just get into this rut, and then, yeah, he died for my sins. And, and there's not necessarily any besetting sin, but there's a familiarity that we need to ask God to break us out of. It might be that you're overly familiar with Jesus. 
Or, I found this out, there is something that's different from the familiarity thing, which is called inattentional blindness. Not unintentional, but inattentional blindness. Uh, you don't see something because you're not paying attention. So this happened to me one time. I was driving my car. This was in Ohio in college. Driving my car, no phone, no one around me, no one else in the car, wasn't distracted. This is different than distraction. Just in my own head. And I drove through an intersection, and then I came to, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and it was bright red. I had just blown straight through a red light. Didn't, didn't even register or see that there was a red light. I was just in my own head. <coughs> Excuse me. And there's this phenomenon called inattentional blindness where something might be in the field of vision. And totally, if you were cognizant and if you were present to what's going on, you would have seen it. But for some reason, our attention is elsewhere. And so we, don't, we literally don't see it or register that it's in our field of vision. You tracking with me? Jesus is in our field of vision. And if you woke up today, if you saw the sun, if you, you're hearing the scriptures, like he is in our field of vision, but sometimes our focus is on other things to the expense or at the expense of being able to see God. So what's the solution when maybe we can't see or, or there's inattentional blindness or uh, um, other, other situations going on? What's the solution? Well, uh, at Church of the Resurrection, we... We talk about the table a lot. We talk about the three tables, the first, second, and third tables of the Christian life. And these three tables um, correspond to relationship with God, relationship with one another, and relationship with the world, or faithful witness in the world. And the primary ways that we can prime the pump for seeing God is to commit ourselves to pursuing those three key relationships. So at the first table, are you actively giving yourself to the spiritual habits of the Christian life? Are you reading the Bible devotionally? Are you praying? Are you attending worship? All you hear say, yep, attending worship. Um, are you paying attention to nature and what's going on in, around you and in the people in your lives? If those things are completely absent from your life, that's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. It's not a magic trick where if you start reading the Bible, your relationship with God is going to be perfect. We just talked about how that's not the case. But these are the kinds of habits that prime the pump and get us ready to, to, to see when Jesus shows himself. And it's, I would say it would be a, a, a disappointment to you if that was the only place you stopped, if it was just about your personal relationship with God or your personal habits, because actually we need community, don't we? So we have the second table of the Christian life and giving ourselves to accountability and to fellowship. There are times when I've been dry and someone else has come into my life to call me out on something that needed to be changed and it, 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 for some reason it just ignited something in me and brought me a level of closeness to Christ that I didn't have before that. And it took a relationship and someone speaking into my life. Or someone else's joy or something good going on in their life, it, I get to participate in that because I'm in, I'm in relationship with them. And that brings joy in my life. And that brings me a connection to God that I didn't previously have. Being, having vulnerability about where I'm at in the midst of that relationship is going to give me greater access. And lastly, active engagement in the mission of God. If our lives are constantly in intake, 
with no outtake or output. Um, and I don't mean output as production. I mean, think about like the Dead Sea. Um, there's a stagnation that can take place. It's a stagnation that can take place. And we are going to feel most alive and most connected to God, I believe, when we are actively involved and practically involved in mission. Service to the poor, service to the hungry, evangelism to those who don't know Jesus Christ, actual like verbalizing the gospel and inviting them to believe in Jesus Christ, even if they say no. Faithful witness and mission in the world is going to catalyze our faith in a way and give us clarity about where God is working and how God is moving in a way that we otherwise wouldn't see. So in conclusion, Christ wants to show you himself. He wants to show you his glory. This is what is happening at the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a personal uh, a revelation of Jesus Christ. But if you're struggling to see him, reevaluate your life and are you giving yourself to these three tables? Are you pursuing the spiritual habits of the first table to come to God? Are you actually pursuing real, vulnerable community and accountability? Or are you on an island? Are you, are you walled off? Break that down. Are you on mission or is it everything about you? Are you ever giving? Are you ever on mission to invite people to believe in Jesus Christ? If not, consider joining some of our ministries that do that and going to talk to your neighbor about Jesus or your family members. We pray, we'll be praying about that here in just a minute. I pray that you would find Jesus lovely and that you would see him as he is. Amen.